Thank you, Chuck, for opening God's word for us. Yes, a familiar passage for us reading this morning and a familiar offertory. Thank you, choir, for leading us. Perhaps you've heard the story of the great theologian Karl Barth in 1962. He was at the University of Chicago, and, and Karl Barth was one of these guys who was just a genius, a 20th century uh, genius in theological works, wrote more books than most of us will ever read, and with larger words than we could ever pronounce. <laughs> and a student stood up at, at a conference and said, Dr. Bart, could you summarize all of your life's work in a single sentence? And Karl Bart said, I can. It's in a little song I learned on my mother's knee, and it goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. Or the Bible tells me so. What a good reminder this morning. Thank you, choir, for leading us. In my garage are boxes. Um, there are boxes on the shelf and then boxes on top of those boxes. Now, to the left and to the right of those boxes are boxes. <laughs> For some 20 years after graduating from college and moving all of these boxes out of my parents' home, I moved them from one apartment to another and finally to their current resting place in my garage. <laughs> now, inside of those boxes are baseball cards and track and field medals and AYSO soccer trophies alongside power cords to computers whose operating systems were built during the Bush administration. <laughs> The first one, if somehow some burglar snuck into our garage and stole these boxes, I would hunt him down and hug him for his service. <laughs> Maybe even give him a tip. Now, I know your garage is not like my garage. No, no, your garage has space for a car. Your garage has tools hung in their appropriate spots on the wall. So, for a few moments, just think about my garage, okay? With all those boxes and all their old, outdated awards. We continue our Lenten series this morning. We're waving the white flag, throwing in the towel, raising our hands in surrender to all the things that keep us from growing into a Christ-centered life in God's family. And, and all the things that keep us from inviting others to do the same. This morning, I want to invite us to give up something that we see modeled in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. Something that Paul gives up because he sees Jesus give it up. So let's pray and then we'll dive in, okay? Father God, our flesh is like the grass, the grass of the field. And all our glory is like the flower of that grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. Now may your word, by which the gospel is preached to us, may it penetrate our hearts with truth. May it comfort us, but may it call us to the life that you desire for us. It's in the name of Jesus it's for the sake of your inbreaking kingdom, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Paul writes at the outset of chapter 3 in his letter to the church in Philippi, finally rejoice in the Lord. 
It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Remember, dogs in the first century were not like our lovable family pet Fido. No, most dogs roamed the streets rummaging for scraps while other dogs would guard a home, but they were never allowed inside, much less to cuddle with anyone on the couch. And so Paul plays with that metaphor a little bit. He says, keep the dogs out of church. I want to guard those Philippians' faith. He says, watch out for the dogs, those evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now, when we see the word flesh, usually, especially in the Pauline epistles, we think of the sins of the flesh, don't we? But here, Paul is using that word flesh a little bit differently. He's thinking of human accomplishment, uh, human achievement, human advancement. He says, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, Based on the law, he is so bold as to claim that he is faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Sometimes Paul uses architectural metaphors, right? Talking about the body of Christ. Other times he uses um, agricultural metaphors about uh, planting and watering and growing. And, And here Paul uses accounting language. Perfect for tax season, amen? I didn't get any amens on that one, right? (laughs) Paul says, I have invested in all the blue chip stocks. And I've made big money. But now, all of those gains, I consider a loss. What's more, what's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own through the law, but that which through his faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, on, to know the power of his resurrection, the participation of his sufferings, becoming like him in his Death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. These past few weeks, we've thought about giving up, right? Waving the white flag, throwing in the towel, raising our hands in surrender because we know during Lent we're supposed to give something up. But sometimes that something is difficult to decide on. So we thought about giving up comparison to instead trust in God's provision. We've thought about giving up fear to trust in God's protection. We've thought about giving up noise to trust in God's presence. And this morning, I want to invite us to follow Paul's example and to give up being 
right. Which is really tough. It feels wrong to give up being right when you know you're right. Right? But think about all the ways that Paul was right. He was born into the right family with the right heritage. He was raised on the right side of town, attended the right schools, got all the right grades. He followed the rites and the rituals, the rules and the regulations of religion. Paul was right. It's like being born a Rockefeller or a, a Vanderbilt, a DuPont, raised in the Hamptons or Newport Beach, graduating summa cum laude from Harvard, though some of you would say USC, right? Ooh, I got a no. Wow. Okay, we got a live one back there. Watch out for Sue. Imagine going on to, after graduating from somewhere other than USC, you lead a Fortune 500 company, you play golf at Augusta National, you vacation with heads of state, you've got everything right. Perhaps the values of the 21st century aren't all that different from the first century. I love that Paul uses the language of accounting. I love it because, and this might surprise you, I love accounting. This is true. You can ask Cassie. Most people might glance over their monthly bank statement just to make sure everything looks, meh, yeah, pretty much right. Not me. Not only did I sign up to receive an email from my bank for every single debit card purchase, I track those purchases in a software program which account for every penny. Then I clear each transaction every few days, and I reconcile them at the end of the month. Anybody else have my sick disease? But because software programs, like the one that I use, don't give me enough detail, I export that information into an Excel file that I created. Now it automatically renders different charts and breaks down our expenses into different categories and payees. And then there are pivot tables on the next page that show the percentage of what we've spent in relation to what we brought in and how that relates to our annual budget. This is true. This is true. Just ask Cassie. I love it. Some evenings when the kids are finally asleep, she looks over at me on the couch and I've got a big smile on my face while I'm working on my computer and she says, what are you so happy about? I smirk and I say, reconciling the checking account. <laughs> I just love it. I'm so happy when it all adds up. This was Paul's world too. He was adding it all up. He was reconciling the accounts. He says, listen, I'm of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, persecuting the church because I know what's right. Maybe the most important on the list was his righteousness according to the law. Remember, there's 613 laws in the Hebrew scriptures. Paul says, I followed them all to a T. Faultless. Paul had the right answers, but here's the problem. Paul had all the right answers to all the wrong questions. His inheritance and his heritage and his hard work gave him all the right reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in his accomplishment, in his achievement, in his advancement. Paul came to realize that he had all the right answers to all the wrong questions. That's what he means when he tells the Corinthians 
that prophecies will cease, where there are tongues, they will be stilled, where there is knowledge, it will pass away. He's reflecting on his own life there and the new story that he's been brought into in Jesus. Knowledge will pass away. Having it all right at some point is all wrong. For now, he says, we we only see as a reflection in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Then we don't have to worry about the checking account and the Excel spreadsheets and the pivot tables because we're going to see Jesus. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That's why Jesus' proclamation of the gospel in the, chap- in, the, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, only uh, verse 14 of chapter 1, Jesus starts by proclaiming the good news with the word repent. Which to us, because we've heard a lot of preachers who pound the pulpit and tell us the things to repent from, we have a particular image when we hear that word. But what Jesus said when, when he invited people to repent was to change their mind or to think differently. Metanoia, it it means to think about something in a whole new way. It's like those boxes in my garage, the boxes upon boxes that were so important, that were so integral once upon a time, long, long ago, and things that I just can't get rid of. But actually, Paul puts it a little stronger, doesn't he? He says, in comparison to knowing Jesus, those human accomplishments... Those human achievements, those human advancements, they're not just boxes in the the garage, they're garbage. They're rubbish. They're filth. It's actually very strong language in the Greek. Paul says, don't let the dogs distract you by roaming around and rummaging for scraps in the streets. They've got it all right, but you get to know Jesus. Then Paul awkwardly switches from I this and I that. He realizes not that he has found Jesus, but that Jesus found him. And for those of us this morning who have questions of faith, first of all, thank you for being here. Thanks for streaming in and thinking about those questions with us. We are honored that you'd spend your time doing so. But if you have questions of faith about what it means to follow Jesus, I want you to know this. The good news of the gospel is not that you have to have it all right. Not many of us do. Look around. (laughs) We don't have to have it all right. And we don't have to find Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that he's come looking for us. We need to allow Jesus to find us. That's the very first question in the gospels. Remember all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve are hiding out and God comes looking for them and he says, where are you? That's Jesus' question to us as well. Where are you? Perhaps you've heard the story of the little boy who was constantly misbehaving. His mother took him to meet with a local pastor, and the local pastor wanted him to see his misbehavior in light of the spiritual life. And so the pastor asked the little boy very simply, where's Jesus? The pastor continued this line of questioning, but every time he asked it, the little boy got more and more nervous. His eyes got bigger and bigger until he finally got up and he ran out of the office, down the sidewalk to his house. He burst open the door and ran down the hall, hid under the covers in his bed. His sister, who knew he'd been meeting with the pastor, came in and she asked, oh my gosh, what happened? The boy replied, oh, 
I am in big trouble this time. Jesus is missing and they think I did it. <laughs> Friends, it's not our job to find Jesus, okay? It's not our job to find Jesus. That would just be another way that we're right. And perhaps you've seen this from religious folks who are sure that they've found Jesus and they understand Jesus better than anybody else. They've fallen into the trap of the Apostle Paul. Our, friend, our job is not to find Jesus. Our job is to let Jesus find us, to hear his question, where are you? Now listen, the past two years have given us a lot of opportunities to be right. The origin of the virus, the effectiveness of masks, the importance of social distancing, the safety of the vaccine, response to racial injustice, what's happening in Ukraine, and why, and what to do about it. There are a lot of opportunities we have to be right, aren't there? And please don't hear me implying that you're wrong on any of these issues. I know you're right. But even in being right, are there times that we have the right answers to the wrong questions? What's the question that we should be asking ourselves and the question that we should be inviting others into? It's that question that God repeats looking for Adam and Eve. It's that question of Jesus trying to find us. In one of his books, um, John Ortberg tells the story of visiting um, the great Dallas Willard. Um, now, Dallas Willard was an author of incredible books on Christian spiritual disciplines, but he was also a philosophy professor at USC. Sorry, Sue. <laughs> he was a highly regarded professor, and one day, John Ortberg sat in on one of Dallas's classes. Graduate student started arguing with Dallas, trying to prove a point, trying to make himself look good. We all remember fellow students like that, right? And Dallas merely smiled. He closed up his notes and dismissed the class early, saying, I think that's enough for today. After students filed out of the class, John Ortberg asked him, Dallas, why did you let that student win the debate? You could have easily proven to him that he didn't even exist. You know, philosophy professors. <laughs> Dallas Willard responded, I'm practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. I'm practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. The discipline of not having to be right. Paul gives up being right for a whole new kind of knowledge. The Greek word that he uses is gnosko. It's not a knowledge about something. It's a knowledge of something. It's the kind of knowledge between a father and son who know each other so well and have lived together and loved one another and learned about each other. Gnosko is the knowledge between a husband and a wife who can finish each other's Sandwiches. <laughs> Paul writes about a knowledge of Jesus. Not a knowledge about Jesus, a knowledge of Jesus. He says everything else 
It's not just like the, the boxes in the garage. It is garbage. It is filth in comparison to knowing Jesus. And so if we think about our own garage, the boxes that we have, if we think about our own priceless treasures, or even the things that we know, do they seem more valuable than knowing Jesus? And is that because they are that valuable? Or is that because we haven't come to know how good Jesus really is? Paul invites us to have that kind of relationship with Jesus, not knowing about Jesus, but knowing Jesus, a gnosko kind of knowledge. It prompts a shift for Paul from being an accountant to being an athlete. He writes this, it's not that I've already obtained this or that I've already arrived at my goal. See, I haven't gotten there yet, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself to have yet taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Friends, where do you need to give up being right? Where do you need to ignore the roaming and the rummaging dogs in the street? Where do you need to practice the discipline of not having to have the last word? And instead, to let Jesus find you. To hear his question, where are you? To let him know you, that you might know him. That's the invitation for us this morning as we come to this table. As we take this bread and this juice. It's not an invitation to know more about Jesus. It's an invitation to know Jesus. To experience the good news that he lives within us by the power of his spirit. And that we are enveloped in him. Whatever is in those boxes in the garage. That we might consider them rubbish. Garbage. Filth. In comparison to knowing him in comparison to knowing his goodness and his grace. And so God, as we come to this table, would it not just be another thing that we do to be right? May it be something we do because we know that we're not. That we need not find you, but give thanks for the good news that you've found us. That you've come looking. That Jesus left the heights of heaven, the perfection of that place to come down here, to search us out, to seek us out, to find us, to adopt us into your family. May we be reminded of that good news this morning. May we be reminded that it's all about your grace. It's all about your gospel. It's in his name we pray. Amen.